Hello and welcome to The Deeper Podcast, a podcast that's all about living lives that unleash courageous love in small and big ways. I'm Reverend Sean, whatever your host, and today on the podcast, I'm joined once again by Reverend Gretchen Haley, Senior Minister of Foothills, because we're diving into a sermon that she gave at our 8.30, our in-person, in-the-church sermon. Why don't you give us a glimpse at what's going on right now at Foothills in terms of worship? What happens during the service? I, I, I know it's different than what we did before, and it's different than the online, so kind of walk us through that experience. First of all, the chairs are arranged in kind of clusters of two and ones and threes and spread out. So our our capacity for the the space overall is somewhere in the range of 200 and 220 or so. But for safety reasons, capping our attendance at about 80. We've had about 70 folks who are in the space, but they're really spread out. They're all wearing masks and we have all the doors and windows open with the fans blowing. This was the first Sunday actually where we felt that effects of the fans blowing. It was pretty chilly. I was watching folks start to shiver a little bit about halfway through the sermon. It's a really simple service. Somebody playing piano, Diane is playing the piano and we have a singer because we're not singing together. So we have a soloist. The magic of this service right now, and it does feel, it's felt pretty magical. It's just remembering that the sim- simple power of being in a room together, focused on those things that matter most without a lot of extras. It's really pretty, pretty much like all of the things that are the most essential components of an in-person service. One of the ways I've been starting each of the services is by inviting people to remember that we arrive in this space connected to every other person that's ever sat in that space for Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, years of Sundays. And we also arrive connected to our own selves that sat in this space over many years, over Sundays, those selves that knew nothing of a global pandemic or of politicized vaccines or, or Zoom church. And we're connected to our future selves, the future that it, we're trying to become. And so the magic of the space to me is, is always about the alchemy of weaving together those stories into something that we can hold in our lives now, being able to connect time in our own bodies and it, just by being in this space together that holds all these stories. That's a really powerful image, the alchemy of those people, both past ourselves, the people who the ancestors of the church kind of meeting us in this moment as we're both tied to the people we're becoming, the people we don't even know. You know, you said that peop- some people were you know, they're coming to church for the first time in 18 months. Some of them are coming to our building for the first time ever. I, yeah. I wonder, it, just like what emotionally is it, was it like to give this? Because the sermon, because the sermon has, it's powerful, but it's also, a, I don't know if you would use this word, but it feels like a, a rebuke or a reminder of, of something that we've lost or that of our core challenge of our time. 
And so I'm just imagining you standing in that pulpit, looking over the 70 or so people that are gathered, they're masked. It's a, it's a fractional part of our community because some people are still online. I mean, we just heard this week of another breakthrough case in our congregation, even after boosters, you're, you're preaching this to, to a subset of our people. What did, what was your internal experience like? So I'm in my 10th year in this community. And even though there's, there are people in this room that are brand new, the large majority of them I know, and I know them pretty well, as much as we can ever really know our congregants. And in that, like, I really, I really love them. And I know who they are in their best sense of them, not individually. I mean, the church as a whole. And so when I feel like I'm, you know, the best place for me preaching, the best zone that I can get into is to really live in the place where I know they're who they are in their best sense. And I'm inviting them to just be that. That's what I feel like this sermon is about is we know, we know who we are in our best sense of self. And all we have to do is be that. We want to be that. I think that sets it up nicely. So let's listen in. In the middle of July, as wildfires raged across the West and with drought and heat threatening major cities, and as the Delta variant created our Groundhog's Day of weighing risks and precautions, right then, two different U.S. billionaires launched themselves into space. Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, whose net worth is over $177 billion, or maybe it's over $192 billion. I found some conflicting information on the internet. Either way, what's a few billion dollars? He took what CNN called a supersonic joyride on July 20th. He and three others on board were waitless for three whole days minutes. The 11 minute ride in total cost Bezos $2.5 million per minute. So quick math, that's a $27.5 million joyride. Just over a week earlier, Richard Branson, the founder of the Virgin Group, also launched himself into space on his latest test flight for what he says will become a space tourism company. Branson says he wants to make space accessible to everyone. It will only cost you $250,000 a ticket. With a net worth of over $4.4 billion, Branson was quick to point out to reporters after his flight that he doesn't want to be known as a billionaire, since he says he started off with 200 quid. That's about 270 bucks. Implying, I guess, that his money now has changed nothing. 
A third billionaire, Elon Musk, is also working on a space tourism effort. Uh, his is going to be called SpaceX, but he has yet to actually launch himself into space. I'd say maybe he's saving up, except his net worth is just over $150 billion. So, I don't know. Regardless of their intentions, and at least Bezos seems pretty insistent that his intentions are humanitarian, the spectacle of billionaires escaping the planet while the planet is burning and COVID was raging was, to many of us, disgusting. And also just one more absurd reality we've been forced to witness over recent years. One of my favorite cynical tweets went, Jeff Bezos, you have the ability to end world hunger. You also have the ability to take a teen to space. Which do you? Oh, that was fast. Watching the whole thing play out, I kept wondering if these billionaires and their efforts to go to space, especially right now, represented the least Unitarian Universalist thing ever, or the most. I mean, most Unitarian Universalists I talked to or saw posting about it treated it like it was the antithesis of our religion, focusing on how irresponsible it was, how selfish, how wasteful, especially in light of things like world hunger or COVID or climate change and how much good their resources could do to address these major global problems. And I agree, of course, these are not Unitarian Universalist values. And I also felt like in their choices, you could see some of the roots of our faith. We too have had times where we have made scientific discovery the most important value, which led to our shameful history in eugenics. And we too have been part of colonization, leading to our equally shameful founding of boarding schools for Native Americans. And we too have prized the sort of rugged or Emersonian individualism Branson, Bezos, and Musk's stories epitomize. We too appreciate calling most sacred the law of our own nature and trusting in our individual selves most of all. We are the I-Church. For a lot of us, discovering a religious community that encouraged individualism felt like freedom. It was, for many of us, the thing that brought us here. I mean, we love Emerson. As Unitarian Universalist Minister Cheryl Walker has said, individualism is so attractive in the beginning. For many people who felt that heavy yoke of being in communities of faith where they could not fully be who they were, individualism tastes like the food they have been hungering for. But it is good only when we are starving. When we have had our fill, we look for food to sustain us for the long journey of life. And that life-sustaining food can be found only in true communities of shared purpose and values where the individual is affirmed, but is not worshipped. 
Fred Muir first described Unitarian Universalism as the I Church in 2012 in a lecture to his fellow Unitarian Universalist ministers entitled From I Church to Beloved Community. Muir's critique of the I Church focused on what he called our Trinity of Errors, which of course is funny because we're Unitarians. These three historic errors in his estimations prevent us from living into our potential impact and relevance and will, if we don't stop them, ultimately lead to our decline. The trinity of errors starts with our individualism. And then this individualism leads into the second error, exceptionalism. As he says, we Unitarian Universalists must stay conscious of how we explain, defend, and share our perspective lest we come across as elitist, insulting, degrading, and even humiliating of others. In this one, I think he is after the idea that we can, we can feel like our faith, our, the, our way of doing religion is better than any other way of doing religion, which can come across as elitist, insulting, degrading, and even humiliating of others. These two errors of the I church, he says, are co-equal with a third error that is our allergy to power and authority. And this allergy, he says, ironically has led to their abuse and misuse. He writes, Unitarian Universalist anxiety about power and authority makes it hard for us to welcome and listen to a diversity of interests and passions without being distracted and immobilized. Instead, as Rebecca Parker notes, most liberals, consciously or not, seem to prefer that their religious institutions remain weak, underfunded, or distracted by endless attention to process and checks on the exercise of power. One friend of mine quips, she says, One friend of mine quips that liberal religion teaches you that you can do anything you feel called to do as long as you do it alone. In place of these errors, Muir advocates a return and reclaiming of our practice of covenant. As we hear in the reading, he invites us to articulate and live our principles, not as individual statements of belief, which they never were, the, like the inherent worth of any individual, but rather as promises to one another. That is a commitment to create and sustain community, promising to one another our mutual support, mutual trust and support. Instead of the I church, he says, we need a church focused on we. Now, 2012, when he wrote this, when he uh, gave his lecture initially, that was the year I arrived at Foothills. So if all of this feels very familiar to many of you, I am so glad. Because over the past nine years, many of us have been trying to look intentionally at the ways Muir's Trinity lives in our individual hearts and in our collective practices. And of course, while Muir's critique focused on Unitarian Universalism, we can also apply it to American culture more generally, which has been heavily influenced by Emersonian individualism. 
The story of the American dream, or what UU minister Lisa Bovee-Kemper calls the fallacy of the American dream, that tells us that not only are we expected to succeed alone, but also that every person has the innate ability to do so. This lie, as Bovey Kemper says, is the single largest contributor to the fractured and declining state of our nation and many of our churches today. I'm just going to say it one more time. This fallacy of the American dream tells us that not only are we expected to succeed alone, but also that every person has the innate ability to do so. That the state of our nation has been such a persistent pain point for many of us over the last five or so years has likely been motivating also to many of us because we can see the impact of extreme individualism play out with each new absurdity we've had to witness, including, maybe most of all, with the elevation and election of Donald Trump as president in 2016 who seems to me the supreme example of a proud individualist. In turn, as a congregation, Foothills has met each selfish, ego-driven, divisive headline over these same years with an increasing care for the whole. We became a sanctuary congregation. We started our twice-a-month food bank. We moved to three services on Sundays. We accepted different sorts of music and different styles of ministers and different words than we'd ever heard in our, in our Sunday morning services before. We addressed unhealthy uses of authority and we got more explicit about how we intend power and accountability to work. We grew up all sorts of small groups and spiritual practices, and we have been shockingly generous with our giving, including to fund the building that we have needed for at least 15 years, which, by the way, we break ground on early next year. We practiced partnering and following the lead of other organizations, and we regularly give away $50,000 a year to other community partners. Now, to be clear, we did all of this not because it was good for any particular one of us, any I. We did it because it was good for we. And actually, if you talk to any one of us, you will likely hear disagreement, discomfort, even distaste for some or all of the shifts we've made. And if you and and if you keep talking past that, you will also tap into a clear and abiding yes. That is an understanding that we do this not for me, but for we. Something over these years clicked. We got done with that alone, lonely, outdated story of liberal religion as a place where you can do whatever you want as long as you do it alone. We didn't get rid of individualism. It, it is the water we swim in, and we still love Emerson, and we still get seduced by the idea of being nonconformists who just always go our own way. But 
Alongside this, we also began to discover what it could mean to prize not individualism, but the beloved community. And then, and then came Friday, March 13th, 2020. Will any of us ever forget that day, that week, that time? In those days, everything, everything changed. Everything. And for a time, we, far beyond the church, I mean, much of the world, we were all in it together. We were flattening the curve. We were cheering for healthcare and other essential workers. And we were learning new terms like social distancing and unprecedented times and what it means to mute yourself. Our congregation's collective orientation drew an easy yes to sheltering families experiencing homelessness in our otherwise empty building and through much of 2020 kept us committed to remaining connected in totally unfamiliar ways. We learned Zoom and circles. We spread kindness and sang silent night out into the air. We gave to the discretionary fund and the immigrant relief fund. And in our personal lives, we set aside travel plans, learned tech we had no interest in learning, and we lit, tried to listen to well-meaning adult children who told us to stay home. 2020 was a time of sacrifice. And we accepted the sacrifice because it was meaningful. Even as politics and capitalism troubled the idea of being all in it together, we made these choices because we, we were living our values. Through our collective commitment, we could imagine our collective salvation. And then things shifted again. The vaccine arrived. And to be clear, the vaccines are a miracle a miracle of science. They came way sooner than any of us had any right to expect. I mean, I think of my dear queer siblings who just kept dying through all those years of AIDS. Vaccines are a miracle. And vaccines do not work in the eye anything. Vaccines require we. Many of us got our vaccine knowing this and it made our resolve even stronger. It was our individual and collective path to liberation. It's what led us into the work of vaccine equity earlier this year. But then to our shock and to our heartbreak, it turns out that others had the opposite reaction to the vaccine. For many people, the vaccine represented not collective salvation, but the need to assert individual liberty and individual choice. And so here we are, nine months into the availability of an extremely effective vaccine. And instead of dwindling virus numbers, we are crossing this right now 700,000 lives lost in our country. 
700,000 lives. And nurses and doctors and other medical staff are burning out and dealing with trauma in ways not unlike veterans of war. And all of this we have to, we have to set in the context of the climate crisis where the supremacy of individual success that is the fallacy of the American dream is corralling us all to an uninhabitable planet. But at least the billionaires will make it out, right? My friends, I'm, I'm tired. Are you tired? I'm tired and I'm angry and I'm sad. Like the series we've been offering online, I am filled with rage and grief. I am tired of accommodating selfishness and being the one to make all the sacrifices. I am tired of marching for women's rights to basic health care, as I'm guessing many of you did yesterday in response to the restrictions on abortion. I am tired of being the ones to go high. I'm so tired. I start to think maybe it is time we we meet today's individualism with some of our own. I mean, we were the OG nonconformists after all. Maybe everyone should just go their own way, focus on their individual lives and families and health and individual goals. I mean, if you don't get the vaccine and end up sick or worse, you made your choice. In our exhaustion and in our grief, it is understandable that we have lost some of our resolve for the common good. It is understandable that individualism would feel alluring, safer, familiar, deeply familiar both in how we would interact in the world and how we want to show up in our church. I mean, it would make sense that we'd show up in this moment in our church with a strong tilt toward individualism. We have made so many sacrifices. And individualism, as Cheryl Walker says, tastes like food we've been hungering for. And... After some time, we will also remember that if there ever was a moment to lean into the power of true community, it is now. For as much as we know that initial spark of being celebrated as an individual, we also know that as we remember the deeper power of being for others. We know and we remember the power of being for the greater good and for the future. We know the power of living, knowing that we inter are. That is, I am of you. You are of me, as Thich Nhat Hanh would say. Here we know and we remember we do this so that we all may live. So let's affirm even now, I mean especially now, the end of the I, church. As Fred Muir said nearly a decade ago now, that story is over and it won't take us where we must go. What we need for a healthy future, for any future, is the beloved community. 
And the good news I have for you, friends, is that we are already doing it right now. I mean, look, look, we're wearing these masks. We are not singing together. We are pre-registering. I mean, who would have ever thought Unitarians would pre-register for church? And if you ask any one of us, do we like it? Is it our preference? We'd say, no way. We hate it. I hate it. We, I, we hate it. But we do it because it's not about me. It's about we. The aching earth and its hurting people need us to keep declaring the end of the I church and need us to keep offering a community grounded not in individualism but in covenant that is a community grounded in the promise of mutual trust and support where no matter what comes at us next we remain committed to life abundant for all For listening to that, there's so much that swirls. There's a few quotes that stick out in my mind. And and the first one is from Cheryl Walker. I'm not going to get the exact wording right, but it's that individualism is good food only for the starving. You tease out how past trauma leads us to individualism as, as well as our culture. I wonder why you think we confuse individualism with kind of the inherent worth and dignity of every person. Both our culture and our our, our trauma lead us to conflate those two things. And not just on the like, don't tread on me, but that, that the allergy to authority, the, the struggle to, to not, to submit to a community that isn't doing everything that you want it to, or does it best fit your preferences? even if it's your people? There's a lot there. The first thing that comes to mind is when you have experienced a lack of agency and a lack of freedom, the, the first thing that you need is total agency. But I think Cheryl's words are that when you're starving, is that you need a deep sense of being able to choose for yourself what is right for you, which is first even being able to know what you prefer <laughs> and know what you, what you believe and know what you like and know. So I think there's- You need to experiment. <laughs> right. Like you need to live, right? Live, live from yourself. Yeah. And it, so it's not, it's, it, and I think in terms of inherent worth, that sense of agency is really- deeply connected to the way we understand inherent worth that everyone has there is a sense of individual agency and individual choice we say there is no coercion in covenant there is no coercion in relationship there's no coercion in the we that you have to make a choice there is something um, deeply intertwined with the your inherent worth and your inherent right to choose that must be a, a given so what is not a given then that's the good news it's just we have to start with that as a given that that we have the right to choose we have the right to know it and experience it it's not just like oh it's a given and so 
now let's move on. You have to feel the ways that you have choice, exercise choice, have agency, exercise agency. And now that's a given. That's true. You've experienced it. Okay, so how will you choose to be for something more than yourself? But so I think that that to me that it is, I think she's right to say it is a first step. It, it must be experienced. You must experience agency. People in a variety of ways are injured at the site of agency. And like so many traumas, we, we revisit that, that wounding if we haven't processed it. It's a way in which like we, like that free choice to be a part of a collective, right? Because the other way of asking this question is like, how is our inherent worth affirmed in our choice to be a part of a collective? There's a way in which our, our inherent worth is not diminished. We don't lose integrity by making that free choice to submit to a community that isn't just about my preference, but is about, you know, the deepest parts of myself. And yet if we have it metabolized, the, the pain of the trauma of not getting to choose each moment in which we are asked to make that choice feels like a return to that place in which we didn't have any power returns to that trauma. And so we complete that cycle again of choosing to go it alone. Because that's what feels like the path that has integrity. I think that's really right. And we see that in church over and over. It's why we have this passion for creating a community that heals that wound and, and moves us from a replay, a reaction of that, to that wound over and over. And instead is a constructive path of the new thing, the, the choice towards something rather than against something. In the sermon, I talk a little, just barely do a little bit of Thich Nhat Hanh's interbeing. The wound is the experience of someone not honoring to you the ways we enter are. So that you, you have not adequately shown up in their consideration. And there is, it, it has to be a both and you can't, it, you can have no self in the inter R. <laughs> it's just that then in turn, like as, as you move into relationship, we choose to recognize that that self is, is of community. It is of relationship. The self happens in relationship, but there still has to be a self. That there's something essential in that interbeing to being. And that what I hear you say is like the wound comes from those moments in which someone else's carelessness or malice infringed on, on your being. But that, but that transgression isn't emblematic of the relation of the reality of interbeing of interdependence. Yeah, let's just talk about that as it applies to the pandemic, for example. So I think that, you know, we choose, let's just go really simply. So we choose to wear a mask out of a deep sense of, I mean, it, out of a deep sense of care and of our awareness of our interbeing. 
And, you know, it is out of a sense of my choices and my, who I am is going to impact you no matter what. So I need to, to protect you. I need to protect me too. And I need to protect you. And then when we see people making other choices that are, that are really oriented only towards their choice to not have to do that, then, then that, 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 that diminishes the sense in us of their care and awareness of us, which I think what I see is in turn, then we react by saying, well, then I don't care for you either. Screw you. <laughs> and because you're not caring for me, well, then I can't, I have to protect myself by not caring for you. And it is a, it's, it's an irony of like the, the, I think the deeper we've, we've gone, the me progressive communities spiritually and politically, the deeper we go into a sense of interbeing and interconnectedness, then when we see a, a failure by others to, to, to recognize that, then we, then we in turn have, we are, we revert to that deep sense of individualism and an individual choice because we feel injured about their failure to recognize us. And so it's a, it's a reaction in, in the pain. And so that, but the, the, the corrective, the way we think we're going to heal that is by going more individual. But my theory is the corrective, the only way to heal that is to maintain a sense of, of integrity around that, that we're making these choices, not because somebody's recognizing us, but because we, we, we live out of a, a, a commitment to that interbeing. We, it is a deep sense of truth that honors our own, our own sense of what's true. It is, it is be out of an honoring of our inherent worth and theirs to live out of that choice. That it is, you know, essential to who I am to, Im to imbue in how I live my life, that regard for others. I, I mean, it, it's, it's so, it's so fascinating because you, you touch on this, the ways in which the fatigue of COVID, the choices that, that governments, that communities, that individuals have made pushes us to this return to individualism. But I also wonder if there's an expansion of individualism that has to do with like fracture, fracturalization or polarization. Cause, cause what I also see is, is a, is, is, is a, I want to be with those people that are making the same choices as me. I'll, I'll interbe with them. <laughs> I, I'm okay having my interdependence caught up with these people, but not those people. And so it's like we've added this, this polarized uh, litmus test to as a way of dealing with the heartbreak, the 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 psychic injury, the the moral pain that people have caused. And it's real. I, like, it's not just like phantom. I mean, 700,000 people have died. Probably the majority of them needlessly because of the choices that governments and individuals have made. And so it's all, it feels like natural emotionally that we would respond to that with a degree of, of, of anguish, of lament. And yet I see progressives respond and I've done this myself. I feel it in me, that sense of, I don't want to be in it with them. Mm -hmm. The extra painful piece of that is them is often our family member 
or it's our, you know, our childhood friend. It's, it's the close in relationships that we've, we've come to through this, that it's irreconcilable. And so then the, the, the only move it feels like we can make is to cut off relationship, to have, to, to attempt to have no relationship. You know, for me, just talking about this actually with the board, it's just how can we make moves that are, that maintain relationship while still maintaining our integrity of these choices, whatever those choices are, pandemic or otherwise. To me, that's a next step, um, maturing of trying to figure out how to live in this interbeing that, you know, you, I think the, the struggle with this, with this and many other things is, you know, how do you hold your choice with somebody who's making the exact opposite choice that like the two cannot be reconciled? How do you maintain relationship with that? It is the challenge. I didn't, I didn't get into in the sermon, (laughs) but that's, you know, how do we maintain a sense of connection with people who to us, it it literally feels like there, if we allow for their choices, our choice can't exist. What do you do about that? My, my home province in Canada, Alberta is currently in their fourth wave. Dozens of people are dying. The other day, I think a 12-year-old died. I saw a post on social media from, I think it was a nurse who's working in one of the hospitals. And she said, a lot of people are asking me, what's it, what's it like to go to work? You're mostly dealing with unvaccinated people, people who don't believe COVID is real, and yet they're dying of it. Doesn't that make you angry? And her response, it, it, it made me stop in my tracks because she said, it doesn't make me angry because I feel sad. It's under some compassion in me because what I see is that they got caught up in a media ecosystem that lied to them, that, that told them that it wasn't dangerous, that the vaccines were the danger and that it was other people that would die, not them. And so here they are, maybe in their last days on this planet, and they are living with a cognitive dissonance of the way I, the way I thought, everything I thought was true, isn't. And what do I do with that? And most of us, I mean, we have cognitive dissonances all the time. We choose to stay firm to what we think. We, see, we search for evidence even, even to the end. But her, her kind of reframe to compassion helped me under, like, helped me think differently about their choices because it's not just that someone wakes up and decides to not wear a mask. It doesn't, like, someone just doesn't wake up and not take the vaccine. It's why our vaccine equity work with the BIPOC Alliance in Northern Colorado is so important because of the ways for generations. You mentioned eugenics. 
as a part of the sermon. I mean, white medical communities have experimented on communities of color for generations. Like the medical field has a lot to atone for, and it is reasonable that there is suspicion amongst communities of color. But it still comes back to that question of how do we sit in our stand in our commitment that we, when other people are making different choices and what do we want to lead from? And do we want to lead in a way that, that fractures the social connections or ones that has the potential to heat, to heal them? And, and to be honest, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. I'd rather make fun of people. I'd rather diffuse the tension by othering. But I, but if I'm living from that we, I know that's not the right choice. But yeah, it's the one I want to make. I mean, in the short term. Right, but we live in the short term. To go back to the feeling of the sermon, when it comes down to the thing that saves us is living from that place of compassion and integrity and in a real deep place in us we know that when the pain hits of the other choices and the deaths that we're experiencing still there is to me something and the only thing that's really selfish is to be able to say there's another way and we're going to keep living it no matter what. And, and that way includes having compassion and forgiveness for those who, who aren't able to make those choices, whatever those reasons are. And that that is, it, it might feel more painful to make that choice in the short run. But it is the the saving choice in the long run. And it's a choice that we can't make alone. I mean, we, we can initiate it, but it's it's that it's a it's a collective choice that saves us. To be honest, part of why I decided if we needed to preach this sermon and needed to say this one right now, second Sunday, was because I'd gotten a lot of individual requests. When we go back, I want this. I want it to look like this. I I like this song and I don't think you should wear a mask and or I think you should. And yet as I when you look at the body, the community, we know something else. And it's only when you put us in the we that we know that. I count myself among that, that I I know I have my my preferences and things that I think I'd like to do. It's only in the context of the we that we make choices for a, the greater good. And so when I'm tipping towards despair or injury, wound, wound, the wound, then we move towards the greater story we go towards being for us so for those of you who don't know we're foster parents my husband and i last 
last week we had a, we had a party in which we invited all of the people that spend a significant amount of time with our kid together, his teachers, his therapists, the, the friends that he spends time with every week, our neighbors who walk him around the block when he needs a friend who spend time with him in their wood shops, who help fix his bikes. And we, we gathered them all together and we, we fed them a meal. <laughs> and there was this moment of looking at the like 30 people that showed up and that at once I was in awe of the amount of commitment and care and dedication that these people had towards us and our kid to allow him to, to thrive. And I also noticed the sense of like deficiency within myself, the sense of like, like, how can it be that you need 30 people for your kid to be okay? And, and so I just, I felt that story, right? Lisa Bovey Kemper's, you know, everyone's expected and should succeed alone. And yet, as I looked at this group of people, like some of whom had never met each other, some of them went to high school, but didn't know they were connected into each other's lives in this moment. Like it was so, it was such the powerful antidote to that story because the proof was in the relationships and the proof was in the community that gathered and the choices that they were all making in their small ways towards a, a future that affirmed not only our kid, but the whole community that he's going to be a part of for the rest of his life. And so I, I'm just like stuck with that image in my mind of that we, that interbeing and the way in which we have it in us, we know it, we yearn for it, even as it's elusive much of the time. And really, we all could throw a party like that for any of us. It's more explicit in a situation like you're in in the foster care system where our relationships have or have not held. But the reality is that all of our lives are a product of a community that has, has been there for us and called us into who we are, all of us. So, or, or a failure of those things to have, but it is all, we all have that. And what a gift I experienced of being able to say, to see them all in one place and to say, thank you. We invited some of his teachers from elementary school who haven't seen him in years to come. And they were connecting with his teachers right now and us being able to be present and share the stories of his being as it's evolved throughout his life and to say thank you for your part in this in this journey that we don't know where it's going but thank you for what you did because it's easy for me to find despair when I don't see how the dots connect in what I'm doing to that larger story it reminds me of something that oh what's her name at Collegiate Church Jackie Lewis uh-huh what pastor at Middle Collegiate Church in New York says is that we need to celebrate everything. And that's part of becoming the beloved community. 
it's part of revolutionary love is to celebrate everything because it's in celebration that we see what is worthy. Mm-hmm. Now, not just in the future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love the idea that like that in community, we don't just, we don't just need community for a sense of calling us to do the hard thing, but we need community to call us to celebration. So that when I'm forgetting to notice the gift, the blessing, the goodness, someone else is paying attention in this air to say, wow, and, and to, to take time to celebrate. So I like that idea that we talk sometimes about collective courage. This feels like a uh, collective celebration or collective praise that we need a sense of being able to turn to each other that that together we remember to celebrate and that's part of the role of the community too amen one of the things i love about my job is is that i have this unique vantage point on our community i I get to see the ways that the work that people are doing in this part of the church in this part of the community are connecting I heard the stories and experienced the ways that our community has touched and really made a difference in people's lives. So much of the time, these stories aren't things that we can share aloud. They're, they're private and they're intimate. And yet they're still worthy of celebration. I'm so grateful for all of the people, people like you listening, who contribute financially, contribute your time, contribute your energy, contribute yourself to our community. Because you're a part of that. You're a part of the small moments. You're part of our caring listeners that reach out to members of our community in times of struggle. You're part of our you're part of our justice efforts in our greater community, advocating for just immigration policy and walking with those who are seeking asylum. You're with us in the ways that we're reaching out online through podcasts to people all across the country, bringing a message of of hope and love. And so I want to say thank you to all of you for even just listening. It really does make a difference. And if you're moved at any time to support our work financially or through an act of service, that means the world to us. You can set up a financial gift at foothillsuu.org. If you're looking for a way to contribute, reach out to Amy at amy at foothillsuu.org, and she'll more than happily find your place to serve in our community. In our next episode, we're diving into this series on essential. You get to hear a spoken word piece that I put together in a fun little interview where Elaine, Reverend Elaine, puts me on the spot and interviews me about it. Once again, just thanks for listening and thanks for everything you do. For the world that we need.